No Gray Zone podcast is a frank and honest conversation on topics related to sexual abuse, harassment, child exploitation, and domestic and workplace violence. The opinions are our own, based on years of experience as special victims prosecutors. Any study, book, or product we mention is based on our own review and are not sponsored. Links and titles can be found in the podcast notes. You can also learn more at rightresponseconsulting.com. Listener discretion is advised. I'm just good at caring too much. I'm just good at caring too much. Is it too much to ask that you be all mine? I never was good at sharing. I'm just good at caring. Welcome back. I'm Catherine Marsh. And I'm Melissa Hotmeyer, and this is No Gray Zone Podcast. So as we told you last week, we'd be jumping into sexual assault trials this week. And there's no better way to understand the trial process of a sexual assault case than to hear from both sides. I enjoy watching Melissa and Thomas C. Mooney battle each other in the courtroom. And so today we thought we'd bring their battles to you. Yeah, it's it's easier to battle Tom in the courtroom than I think it's going to be on this podcast. We have had many um, a trials together, a lot of high profile ones that we have fought inside of the courtroom. So I'm looking forward to this. I think it'll be painless, Melissa. We, we comport ourselves very well in the courtroom. We are always uh, pleasant to one another. It's my pleasure to participate in this event. I, I have a, a great fondness for the Prince George's County State's Attorney's Office. Proud to work side by side in resolving these very difficult cases, particularly with my favorite unit, that being the sexual assault unit. And we've got that on a recording now that we are his favorite unit. We sure do. So I'm going to do my best to act as the moderator. Both Melissa and Tom, I'm going to ask the same question. Just give it the uh, prosecutor slant or the defense attorney slant. And if a rebuttal is needed based on what either one of you says, brief rebuttal will be allowed. So first question, Melissa, when you get a sexual assault case, what's the first thing you do? Right. And I think we talked about it a little bit last week. But when I get a case, um, the first thing I do is review the entire case file. Before I talk to my investigator, before um, I decide whether or not charges should be brought, I review everything. I review the interviews that the victim gave, the interview if the defendant gave one. I review any witness statements. I review all of the notes. And then I set up a screening with my detective. And I go through any questions that I have or any follow-up that I need the detective to do. And I will tell them the follow-up, and then I will follow up with an email listing all of the outlining, anything that's outstanding, the deadlines that I'm giving them. And then once I have everything that I need, I'll review the case one more time, and then I will make a decision on whether or not I think there is sufficient evidence to charge. And when I'm saying sufficient evidence, I don't look at it as probable cause, which is what we need in order to charge a case. I think ethically I'm bound by, can I prove this case beyond a reasonable doubt? Do I think that there is evidence that a jury, a reasonable jury, could decide in the victim's favor that the defendant was guilty of the crime that it's alleged? And if I think we can reach that threshold, then I will authorize charges and move forward. All right. So Tom, to you, what do you consider or look at first when you are being hired to represent a sexual assault case? Well, quite candidly, the first thing I look at is whether or not uh, this person or their family has the means to hire me. One important factor in what I do, I'm a private defense attorney, is making sure that uh, it's worth my time and money to get into the case and whether they're going to have the finances to uh, see me all the way through. Obviously, from 
a logistical standpoint, uh, the first thing I do is I'll, I'll reach out to the client. They're incarcerated. I'll go to the jail and speak with them. If they're at liberty, I'll meet with them in the office. I try to gather as much information about the allegations as I can. I am somewhat at a disadvantage as it relates to the state because the state has uh, the investigatory notes and, and information from the police officers. They have uh, a jump start on the case, as it were, uh, with the ability to speak with the various witnesses and, and collect that information. The state is duty-bound to turn over discovery to me, so that's the next important thing for me is, is getting the discovery from the state once I'm hired reviewing the discovery, and the discovery is all of that information, all of those reports and witness statements and victim statements and the like, the sexual assault examination, anything else that's relevant to the case. We receive that. We review it with the client. We review it internally within the office. The attorneys discuss it, game plan in that respect. And then we start the process of the defense, and that is um, figuring out what the best defense is, what the viable defenses are, and uh, we map out kind of a trial strategy and look forward to heading into court. So I know one of the most difficult aspects of a sexual assault trial is the victim's testimony, and there are challenges and difficulties for both the prosecution and the defense. So if both of you can take a moment to answer, how do you prepare for the victim's testimony and actually conduct the direct or cross-examination? And Melissa, you get to go first this time. All right. There is really no way to truly prepare a victim to testify. You know, I will meet with them several times. Most of the times I meet them in the beginning, we don't even discuss the case. I try to rapport build because sometimes I am their only person in the courtroom. If their other friends or their family members are, vic are witnesses, they may not be allowed to be in the courtroom at the time, or they may not want uh, their family and friends there while they testify about their sexual assault. And so I think that, you know, having somebody that they have some sort of relationship with is important. And so I try to build that rapport with them. Um, but the, the fact of the matter is, no matter how many times we review their statement or go over the questions that I'm going to ask, nothing, nothing can prepare them from sitting mere feet from the person who sexually assaulted them and in front of 12 to 14 strangers who are going to decide their fate. Um, and it's embarrassing and it's hard. And, you know, we try to talk about it. You know, I, I will walk them through what they need to do if they need to take a break, because a lot of victims can't get through the testimony, let alone in my office and, and certainly not um, sitting in the jury box. But as having been a witness before, it is difficult to be a witness. And I was just a fact witness because I observed something, um, not because I was, you know, describing what is probably the worst thing that's ever happened to me. And so it's really hard, but I take the time to kind of go through their statement. I have them review it. Then I go through all of the questions that I've, I'm going to ask. I explain, you know, why I will ask them, I answer any questions they have. And then we spend some time talking about what defense might focus on. And, you know, what kind of defense account, uh, counsel there is, you know, we we see the same attorneys over and over again, whether it's private counsel or the defender's office. And I have gotten a sense over the years of the way that defense attorneys ask questions and not necessarily what questions, but, you know, are they going to be particularly tough on a witness or are they going to, you know, kind of kill them with kindness? And we go over that and, you know, strategies to help them through that process. All right, Tom, how about you? How do you prepare for the testimony or the cross-examination of the victim? Well, well, that's uh, interesting input from um, my opponent here. I, I wonder whether uh, when a victim is being prepped for my cross-examination, whether I'm a lamb or a, a wolf, as it were. Always a wolf. Always a wolf. Is that right? I, I, I find myself to be uh, exceedingly gentle. In just just about the wolf in sheep's clothing. 
Okay, excellent. I'll take that. You know, dealing with the proposed testimony of the victim is, is very difficult. It's, it's difficult for a number of reasons because what we are exposed to largely prior to trial is just the discovery, which is often paper discovery. We may have the benefit of a video where the alleged victim is recounting the events to a detective, but it's very difficult to gauge somebody's emotion and how that emotion translates to the witness stand. I've been involved in a number of rape cases, and, and sometimes you expect a witness to come in and literally be a puddle of tears and very sympathetic. And, and, and in those cases, uh, we have to consider handling that person very gently uh, so that we don't lose the jury. At the end of the day, uh, the jury is making this decision. Uh, they are observing the demeanors of all parties, and that includes the defense attorney, uh, which, which becomes very difficult for us because if you're somebody that just has one particular modus operandi when it comes to cross-examining a witness, I think that you're, you're, you're losing out or at some point you risk losing the jury. Uh, I've had victims on both ends of the spectrum, uh, very tearful witnesses and, and those that are pretty stoic and composed. What I try to do, and, and I do, the, the answer to your question is I, I deal with these things on the fly because there's no way to prepare uh, kind of alternative questioning uh, whether somebody's being emotional or not. So I just come in uh, and uh, really make my decisions and ask my questions uh, based on the uh, the vibe of the victim. If the victim is uh, very conversant and willing to answer my questions, then great, we, we can do it that way. Uh, we can do it very conversationally. If they're combative uh, and standoffish, uh, I try to use that to the best of my ability to the defendant's uh, favor, because as indicated, the jurors are always watching. And whether that standoffishness uh, or any spite, any emotion that comes out is a function of the trauma or the trauma of the experience uh, or uh, any other factors that, that may exist. I know when, when Melissa talks about a case, she talks in terms of victim uh, and the most horrible experience uh, that, that they've gone through and the like. I presume uh, that my client is innocent and I proceed in that fashion. Uh, so I will refer to them as the alleged victim. I would never uh, characterize a, an event that is before a jury as an assault or uh, a rape uh, until the jury comes back and delivers uh, that particular verdict. So it really is up to the victim and how the victim comports their self will dictate how I handle them uh, when I cross-examine them. It really is a dance trial work. I, I wanted to be an actress when I was little and I think, although I'm not on TV, I, I play an actress in the courtroom. I think Tom would say the same thing. Absolutely. Generally, if the defense is going to be consent or she was asking for it or whatever else, then I'm going to force the defendant to, to get on the stand. I'm not going to give him his defense. Uh, I'm going to make him 
tell the jury and give myself the opportunity to um, to cross-examine him. So I typically don't use the defendant's statements unless he makes um, admissions, meaning he says something that is inculpatory about, you know, how he knew how intoxicated the victim was or uh, when they started the incident, she was not conscious. And I say she, we, you know, I prosecute defendant is um, a female and, and the, the victim is a male. It's just the generalization of our cases. And so I spend a lot of time reviewing the, the statement and determining whether or not I will use it. But I will say that I think in probably 95% of my cases, again, I'm giving myself up again for my next trial with Mr. Mooney, that I don't use it. And I will sometimes play like I will use it. I think Tom can probably think of one case we had where he thought for sure I was going to admit it and then I didn't. But, you know, I don't think it's to my benefit. My benefit is getting the defendant on the stand. Tom, yeah, your thoughts? That that's. I mean, it's, it's always a tough call uh, from, from the other side of counsel table. Um, I, I can pretty much anticipate whether a state's attorney is likely to use the statement of the defendant or not uh, for, for reasons that Melissa articulated. Um, my bigger concerns, uh, as they are my client and they have an affirmative right not to testify and a jury will be instructed that the fact that they did not testify cannot be considered in any way as evidence of guilt or even discussed by a jury. Uh, so I look to things like, well, did they make a statement? What did they say? Uh, was it consistent with the defense? Is it consistent with reality? Will it translate well to a jury? Will a jury believe it? I also have concerns about how someone will present on the stand. Being on the stand is difficult for a victim, absolutely. Um, I think it's difficult for anyone, particularly somebody who's facing many years in jail for their perceived indiscretion. Um, so uh, whether they are articulate enough to uh, stand up and smart enough to stand up to a rigorous cross-examination. So to that extent, I do factor in my adversary, uh, how aggressive they are and how likely I think it is that they can break uh, my client. Is their testimony necessary? That That is the big one, because if the case can be won without putting them on the stand, there's no worse feeling than putting a client on the stand, having them get spun around and, uh, you know, just perceived as a liar and lose their case where had they not testified, they would have stood a much better chance of success. So really, it, it comes down to those factors and, and will they hold up to cross-examination? Nobody, you can't prepare anybody for game day cross-examination. Except when you have a lunch break. Well, lunch break helps. A lunch break helps. <laughs> and, and Ms. Hotmeyer can uh, explain that maybe on another episode. But yes, time helps. Uh, there are a number of factors, but really it's just whether or not they are up to the task against the state's attorney who is uh, trying to get it. All right. So final question. Closing arguments, although the judge says it the jury, they're not evidence, but we all know that many cases can be won or lost by closing arguments, as it's your chance to summarize the entire trial for the jury and convince them of your side. So how do you prepare for the closing argument with that kind of what have you found works best? Is it better to appeal to legal arguments, emotional arguments, specifically when it comes to sexual assault cases? So Tom, it's your turn to go first. Okay. Um, well, I mean, there's, there's facts. There's, there's law, and then there's always the fallback, uh, 
the, the police, the investigation. Sometimes your facts are good. Sometimes the evidence uh, is favorable or at least not so detrimental that, that a jury would assume uh, that your client is guilty. Uh, sometimes the law is on your side and, and the application of the facts to the law as presented. I do agree wholeheartedly that a case can be won or lost in opening and or closing statements. Closing particularly, but I, I do believe opening statements are a great opportunity to present the jury with your side of the case. Usually the state will come out, they'll open up strong. They'll talk about the worst facts. They'll talk about those things that are particularly troubling to the defense. Those, those items that are either uh, undefendable or, or at least raise an eyebrow uh, in, in the jurors' minds. But the closing argument, although a judge will instruct the jury every single case if requested that a closing arguments of counsel are not evidence, the, the reality is they're, they're the most persuasive items of non-evidence that exist. I do believe that a case can be won in closing argument. And, and I do believe in, in my history that, that I've saved a couple of cases from the jaws of defeat just by arguing uh, whatever way, whether it's vociferously, whether it's uh, like, like a lamb uh, or uh, somewhere in between, really highlighting your, your strong points and uh, making a compelling story. At the end of the day, rape is a very ugly four-letter word. Jurors take their jobs seriously. And I, I do believe that it's just the consensus of the average everyday person that nobody wants to say you're guilty of rape unless they truly believe that beyond a reasonable doubt. To that extent, the defendant is advantaged. And to the extent that we have the ability to present our case in closing argument or kind of recapitulate uh, the evidence from the defense perspective is, is such a powerful tool. Uh, and at the end of the day, uh, I believe that closing argument, for, in, in my opinion, is the most important part of the trial, although it's not evidentiary. Melissa? I mean, I couldn't agree more. I think that closing argument is the most important part of the trial for the state, too. And, you know, the state, it's fitting that I get to go second, because just like uh, in, in trial, the state gets to go first in closing argument and then uh, gets the rebuttal and gets the final word because we do have the um, burden of proof. And I agree with a lot of what Tom says. It's really important to be able to tell the story uh, that you have uh, laid out for the jury that started with opening statements. I do think opening statements are a really important roadmap for the state. But I think I saved the majority of uh, my my oomph, for lack of a better word, for my rebuttal statement. Um, I spent a lot of time in my closing argument, my first closing, talking about the law, relating the facts to the law. Um, I, I have the same... I same closing. I'm sure now Tom has heard it enough that he does, it's not a surprise to him that I give in every closing argument that I give, even before I started just trying sexual assault cases, which is that, you know, in every criminal trial is um, there are two questions. Did a crime occur? And who, if a crime occurred, who did it? And then I go through those elements and how the elements and the facts kind of align. And then I spend my rebuttal time uh, arguing against the points that defense counsel made and raising the most important points in the state's case. Um, and I, I spend a lot of time, especially in sexual assault cases, appealing to the jurors' 
because I do agree that rape is a four-letter word and that it is incredibly difficult to get a jury to the point where they believe a case beyond a reasonable doubt. And I spend a lot of time making explaining to a jury that what my victim was wearing or where my victim was or how much my victim drank does not excuse the defendant's behavior and that the defendant's behavior is is criminal. And it's I do it not because I, I believe it, which I do. I do it because I think that um, the only way we're going to make a change in our society about how we uh, understand sexual assault and how prevalent it is in our society is through our jury trials. And so sometimes that means trying a really tough case with not great facts for the state, but enough to you know bring you to at least closing argument and just arguing your butt off, which is what I try to do on behalf of the state of Maryland and on behalf of my victims who I believe all deserve justice. Well, thank you both very much. This is your time for any final thoughts from either one of you with regard to sexual assault trials in general. Melissa, you can go first. Um, I think I I just want to reiterate, I think that part of my job as a prosecutor and a prosecutor who prosecutes sexual assault is to change perception of sexual assault, that, you know, victims lie and that people file false allegations of rape all the time. That is not true. It does not mean that every single person who committed a rape is a predator who is going to commit you know, 20 rapes, but it does mean that on that particular date, uh, a sexual assault happened. Um, and I think that if we don't try those difficult cases, we don't change perceptions. You know, it was only a few years ago before the Me Too movement that no one thought that Harvey Weinstein was could be stopped. And now he is serving an extended prison sentence for the behavior he engaged in in such a long period of time. And he is not an isolated case. Um, Unfortunately, we have a sexual assault problem in our country and prosecutors like myself, like you, Catherine, all around the country spend our lives trying to, you know, kind of advertise that to our communities. Um, And I think it's a really important job. And Mr. Mooney has an important job, too, because I will always say everybody's entitled to a defense and a vigorous defense. And some of the best cases that I try are when they're against really good defense attorneys that can give me a run for my money. Tom, any final thoughts? Well, I'll take that as a compliment. Uh, you know, I, I'm not going to get deep into my own um, philosophical or um, political views related to sexual assault. Obviously, I'm a defense attorney. The The upside of my job is that I can uh, take a case or I can refuse a case after I vet it and um, or I can uh, assign it internally within the office if it's a case I don't I don't want to handle. Um, I do enjoy uh, trial work, particularly with your unit. I've had cases with Melissa. I've had cases with Catherine as well. And it's, it's always been my pleasure. And I, I do mean that. But I don't take every case. And I don't believe that every person is innocent. I do believe that every person is entitled to a defense. I do believe that people that I've represented throughout this process have been not guilty. Uh, I believe that some have been um you know, wrongfully accused. I don't, I don't believe that victims uh, lie as, as the, as the role, but I believe that there are cases where people exaggerate or they tell a story for a particular reason. And that's why it is important that we have good advocates on both sides that can present their case to a jury and allow our forefathers vision to play out and, and let a jury of 12 unanimously render a verdict that is consistent with their oath, which is whether or not it has been proven beyond a reasonable doubt that this person is guilty of the various crimes. I enjoy my 
my role in that in that process, and I look forward to trying many more cases uh, down the line. I, I appreciate the fact that you guys vet these cases because I think it's important to to really objectively vet these cases and only have those cases where there is merit, where where there is evidence uh, to move forward. And I'm I'm confident that you guys do that, and I and I thank you for that, and and so does my bank account. <laughs> We're happy to help. Well, that's all the time we have this week. Thank you so much, Tom, for joining us. And thank you to our listeners for joining us um, for No Gray Zone podcast. And if you would like to find us on social media, you can find us on No Gray Zone RRC on Instagram or Twitter and No Gray Zone on Facebook. And don't worry, Tom, you already follow us. (laughs) My pleasure. There, There are no excuses when it comes to sexual assault or not having the right response when it comes to sexual harassment. Thank you for listening. This has been a No Gray Zone podcast. I'm just good at caring too much I'm just good at caring too much Is it too much to ask that you be all mine? I never was good at sharing I'm just good at caring too much